You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of John. Here's Nate. As we've seen already in our previous study in John chapter 3, verses 1 through 15, we discovered that the gospel is a wonderful message. This man Nicodemus approaches Jesus at night, a religious leader, a Pharisee, a teacher of all of Israel. And this man approaches Jesus to tell Jesus what he and his comrades have begun to think of Jesus. Oh, teacher, you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do the things that you do unless God is with him. Jesus then responds by demonstrating first to Nicodemus that Nicodemus really, without being born again, can know nothing about the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus then seeks to inquire, and Jesus describes the glory of the new birth to this man. This is the gospel, the possibility that mankind who are born in death and sickness and disease and famine and fallenness and under the curse, the glory of the gospel, the good news of the gospel is that we as a people can be born again, that there is new hope, that there is new life that is found in Christ. And Jesus begins to respond to Nicodemus by describing what this new birth is all about. You're, you're, you're born of the water and spirit. You're cleansed from your sin. You receive a new nature. You know, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. You're led by the spirit of God. Those who uh, are born again are like the wind. You do not know where it comes from or where it's going, but you see its results and you see the results of the Holy Spirit working in the lives of those who have been born again. And so Nicodemus then, earlier in our study, asked the question of Jesus, how then can this take place? And Jesus explained to Nicodemus that just as the serpent was raised up in the wilderness, referring back to the book of Numbers, when the people of Israel were bitten by snakes and were dying left and right, and Moses constructed a bronze serpent, placed it in the middle of the camp, that whoever would look upon the serpent would be healed. Jesus uses that picture to say, just as the snake was raised, so must the Son of Man be raised, that whoever believes in him would receive eternal life. And so the big question after all of that, okay, we, we see that Jesus has introduced the concept of new birth which is glorious and wonderful and good. And the immediate question then would be, how, how, how can I have it? And Jesus says, by faith in the gospel, the work of Jesus upon the cross of Christ. Well, the next question then would be, why? Why has God done such a thing? What does God get out of this deal? And for the reasoning or the motive of God, we have to turn to the very next verse in our passage, John chapter 3, verse 16. He says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So the simple motive of God 
in doing what he did, in establishing the gospel, in sending his son to die brutally upon the cross to atone for the sins of the world. The simple motive is that God so loved the world. In other words, because God is love, and because his nature is a loving nature, and because God looked upon the world and made a decision to love the world, that's why we have this wonderful deal. Now, it's important to mention that because as we think about this, we realize that the author or the originator of this love is God. We refer to God as being independent. Like Paul said on Mars Hill in Athens, he said, as though God needed anything. We've understood from the very beginning of scripture that God is in need of nothing, perfectly satisfied in and of himself uh, before we were created happy, joyful, glad. There was no weakness or insufficiency in him. We do not complete him, so to speak. And so God, completely sufficient in and of himself, loves the world. The world isn't loved for its lovability. The world is loved because God has a loving heart. I mean, the, the reality is the world is the opposite of lovable. The world is fallen, broken. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none who does good. No, not one. There is none who seeks righteousness. None who is righteous. We are a depraved, fallen world. Yet God looked upon us and he chose to love the world. I just want you to pause for a moment and think about what the love of God can do to you. Just on a practical sense, I think pastorally, I would encourage you to tap into the doctrine of the love of God. If you can, it will revolutionize your heart. I don't know where you're at, listener. I don't know what you're doing or what situation you might be in right now in your life. But I just know that as the love of God is consumed in the human heart, the human heart is then set at peace, is then set at rest. A couple of weeks ago, I was attending a church planting conference where we were discussing the planting of churches, the systematic, strategic planting of churches. And it was a wonderful conference, great content, and each speaker had his own facet to deliver. And near the close of the conference, a, a pastor shared who had planted churches in Eastern Europe for the most part, was a missionary. And he got up and he gave sort of an esoteric kind of message on the love of God. But his main point was, was simply that when we desire to be used by God, you know, in the planning of churches or in the loving of our family or whatever, so often we want to do these things because we're trying to attain something. And his point was simple. You know, so many church planters are planting because some of because of some kind of desire within themselves to prove themselves to to validate themselves and his whole message was you are validated by the love of God and I so loved the close of his message he took his bible closed it up and held it up like a little suitcase and said so you know, to plant churches. Yes, we have all this strategy and systems and you're going to have to digest that for yourself and figure it out in your context. However, at the end of the day, you take this wonderful love of God that you've received, you pack it up in your suitcase and you go to whatever city, 
God tells you to go to or you desire to go to and you unpack the love of God for that city and for that culture. The love of God is an incredible doctrine that I think changes everything within us and our attitude towards our fellow man. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. A wonderful, wonderful truth. Now, of course, the question then is, why did Jesus do all of this? Number one, to express the love of God. But number two, in verse 17, uh, John continues to write, and he says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So the cross expresses the love of God, right? And makes a way for the love of God to be received in a human heart, because it's one thing for God to love the world. It's another thing for the world to be able to receive God's love. The cross prepares us and enables us to actually receive the love of God. But number two, he says here in verse 17, that when Jesus came, he did not come to condemn, but he came to save. Now, this is fascinating. Of course, when Jesus came, he came with the authority to judge. John will tell us later in chapter 5, verse 27, that God has given Jesus authority to execute judgment because he's the Son of Man. And Jesus will say in chapter 9, verse 39, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. So number one, he has the authority to judge. But I think what John is trying to communicate here is very simple. When Jesus came into this world, it wasn't even in need of judgment in the condemning kind of sense. He says he did not come to condemn. In verse 18, he says, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. In other words, Jesus didn't need to condemn a soul. Mankind is condemned already. We're already in our fallen state. And when someone rejects Christ, they're already condemned for their lack of faith, their lack of belief. Jesus doesn't need to point the finger and pronounce condemnation. What he does is pronounce salvation, justification. He pronounces that upon those who believe. And I think it's just good to remember here in verse 17, the statement from John that the world might be saved through him. This was the message, the mission of Jesus, to bring salvation to a condemned world. We must remember this. You know, we're the salt of the earth, Jesus said. We're the light of the world. And we bring this message of salvation into the world in which we live. And notice verse 18, what brings a man condemnation? It's a lack of belief. You know, it's not baptism that saves a person. It's not being a good person that saves someone. It's not just being born as a human being. And so God, because of his infinite love, is just bound to save us because we've been born. No, it's none of that. It's belief in the cross of Christ. And I've just found over time that this takes incredible humility. You know, humility to say, I agree. You know, I'm guilty, and so I want to humble myself and receive this love of God. I need to, you know, I need to repent of sin. I need to recognize my fallen state, and I need God to save me. You know, it's hard to be saved when you don't 
realize that you need saving. And so he says here that Jesus came not to condemn, but to save. And this verse 19 is the judgment. Here, here are the results of Jesus' coming. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. I think this is important. You're gonna, we're we're going to see here two camps in their response to the message of the gospel. In camp number one, you have those who love the darkness. And in camp t number two, you have those who receive the light. What I should mention here is that in both of these camps, people are guilty before God. In both of these camps, everybody loves and has loved sin. And in both of these camps, everybody begins in that condemned state. The difference comes in their response and attitude towards this thing that is called the light. And of course, we know that Jesus is this light unto the world. And so, attitude number one are those who reject Jesus as the light. It says in verse 19, they loved darkness because their works were evil. In other words, they didn't just love darkness for darkness sake. They loved darkness because of what it was concealing. Verse 20, lest his works should be exposed. Now, I think this is crucial for our understanding and our worldview of, you know, just mankind and the unwillingness of so many to embrace the wonderful news of Jesus. A lot of times... And here what John is saying is that people will reject Christ in large part because they love sin. I mean, it's very simple. They reject the light because, and they love darkness because their works were evil. And of course, the reality is that sin is a blast. Sin is a wonderful experience for a moment. And mankind leans, as Paul says in Romans chapter 1, towards worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. And so, you know, God is the creator of sex, right? But mankind loves to worship the creation, sex and sexuality and sexual freedom and license, instead of the creator of this wonderful gift. And so they take it and they pervert it and they twist it and they turn it to their own desires. You know, tapping it out to its furthest potential, abusing it and using it until it becomes miserable to people instead of worshiping God, the one who created it, and receiving it as a gift from his hand. This is just the method of mankind across the board. And so a lot of times when somebody rejects the gospel and they give you perhaps a philosophical reason or an intellectual reason or some kind of, uh, you know, hypocritical reason in the sense that they've seen hypocrisy in the church or something like that. So often those are smoke screens. They may be legitimate issues that are present, but the reality is even if you were to deal with all of those 
issues, there's a good chance at the end of it that they would say, no, I want to be my own Lord. I want to be the master of my own soul. I don't want to bow to anybody else. I want to do what I want to do. And so I'm going to love the darkness rather than the light. And he says here, it's because their works were evil. Now there's this other camp that responds to Jesus in verse 21. And it's not just the opposite. That's the thing. It's, it's not that these people, uh, you know, say, okay, well, there's one camp who loves the darkness because their deeds are evil. And then there's this other camp who they love the light because they're just such good people. No, that, that's not it at all. It says in verse 21, it says, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. I think what you have in the second camp, definitely not self-righteousness in the sense of being righteous in and of themselves. It's definitely not a purity that somehow they were born with that the rest of mankind has not received. No, what you have in this second camp is a group of people who something happens inside of their heart where there's a love for God and a desire to say, you know what? I am evil, I am wicked, and I want my wicked works to be exposed by this glorious light, and I want him to change me and transform me. This person has sin, to be sure, but he is willing for that sin to become exposed. And notice what John says. He says that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God or through God. In other words, this man says, I can't live a righteous life. And he begins to demonstrate a life where God himself is living through him. It's as Jesus said, when his disciples said, well, if it's impossible for the rich young uh, ruler to be saved, how can any person be saved? And he said, with God, uh, with, excuse me, he said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And that's what this person does. They just come to God and they say, expose me for the fraud that I am, expose my works, forgive me, and now start working through me. I want to be regenerated. That's what the new birth does. Now, verse 22, we move on into the story of John the Baptist, and we'll cover this briskly as we finish out this chapter. He says, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside. They were already in Judea, but they go out into the countryside, leave Jerusalem. And he remained with them and was baptizing. Now, this is interesting that it tells us that Jesus himself was baptizing people. In chapter 4, we're going to discover in verse 2 that Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples by proxy. So they were doing the baptizing on Jesus' behalf. So in verse 23, it says, John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there. So good place to baptize a lot of people. And people were coming and being baptized for parentheses. John had not yet been put in prison. Now, this isn't, you know, mere stating the obvious or redundancy from the Apostle John to record this. What he's doing is he, he's actually very savvy when he mentions that John had not yet been put in prison because, you know, the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, 
they get into the ministry of Jesus and it bursts onto the scene in Galilee after the arrest of John the Baptist. But Jesus did do ministry before the arrest of John the Baptist and before he went mega public in Galilee. And so John, the apostle, as he writes this down, he's kind of giving us a little insight saying, hey, you know, these are ministries that Jesus accomplished before John was thrown into prison. And I'm giving you insight into that reality. I'm no dummy. I understand that the other gospels record the ministry after the arrest of the Baptist. Now in verse 25, he says, Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. Okay, now in the last few chapters, we've seen that there's a transition taking place and that Jesus is better than Judaism. We saw that in the water being turned into wine, Jesus cleansing the temple, Jesus speaking to the religious Jewish leader, Nicodemus, about the new birth. And so here, once again, a similar thing is happening. Jesus is better. So we see here that this dispute arises over purification. And so they come to John, verse 26, and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, that's Jesus, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. So this is presented as a major problem. You know, Jesus, John, is becoming very famous. People are flocking to him, to his baptism. And, uh, you know, we're nervous about it. So they, they began with a discussion over purification. And through that, they discovered, whoa, Jesus is becoming very popular. And John's disciples come to him and say, hey, man, we just heard that that guy, Jesus, that you baptized, he's getting famous. What should we do? You know, they're, they're upset about this. And they, they feel that this is a legitimate problem. And John is going to ease their minds and let them know this is no problem at all. This is actually just a fulfillment of my ministry. He says in verse 27, it says, John answered, and he, he quotes this maxim of the day. He says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. This is sort of a, a modern phrase that John uses. Hey, you know. You can't even receive one thing unless God gives it to you from heaven. You know, in part, speaking about John. Hey, you know, he's kind of saying, look, I've only got the following that God wants me to have. Nothing more, nothing less. But I think also speaking of Jesus. You know, he's received this following from God. He got his following by God's grace. And I love this heart from John. He wasn't going to fight for himself. He was just simply going to be content. And he says, listen, what Jesus has, he has because God has given it to him. Who am I to wrestle against God? Who am I to resist this? Who am I to fight this? Number two, he goes on in verse 28. He says, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. John was very clear. He says, listen, you guys know that I'm not the Christ. That's not my role. That's not my function. John had previously been trying to get his disciples to follow Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so John looks out and he says, listen, I'm, I'm not the Christ. I don't know why you're looking at me like this. I have nothing to preserve. I'm here to support him and his ministry. I think this is so important in serving the Lord. Because I think so many people do ministry sometimes 
in 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 one sense in order to be able to function as a savior for somebody and the reality is you are no christ i am no christ we are not a savior of anyone our role and responsibility is to promote jesus and get people to the finish line of the gospel verse 29 he goes on and he says the one who has the bride is the bridegroom the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice therefore this joy of mine is now complete you know back in those days the wedding feast the the bridegroom's friend the best man he had a lot of responsibility a lot of duty and uh, there's actually even some evidence that there were laws in place that said that the bridegroom's friend could never marry the bride. You know, if something happened, God forbid, he could never marry the bride. Just a conflict of interest. And so John is sort of using that description and saying, listen, I've been helping get the party ready, the wedding ready. I've been helping prepare and everything. There is a, a, a bride and there is a groom and uh, I've been just the friend of the groom. I hear the voice of the groom now. He's here and my joy is complete. And uh, I just love this from John. He understood that Jesus is uh, the big deal, that we should be rejoicing over Christ. And so he saw that and his joy was full. When Jesus was on the throne and at the center of people's minds and hearts and affections, John was happy. And so he says, he must increase, but I must decrease. The effective sign uh, of any ministry isn't really numbers or anything like that, but is Christ increasing in the hearts of the people that are receiving the ministry? Or is the person, the man, the method, the program increasing? It should be Christ that is increasing. Now, as we close out this chapter, John the Apostle gives us a few truths. This is Christology here, demonstrating the supremacy of Jesus. He says, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. And he who comes from heaven is above all. So Jesus should increase because he is God the Son. He's above all. Verse 32, He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. And whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. Jesus is above all, but he's also the perfect witness. 4 verse 34, he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. Jesus was the first to just have the fullness of God's spirit upon his life. He wasn't just spirit filled, he was spirit full. Yeah, the fullness of God was dwelling within and upon him. He says, verse 35, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand, the eternal Son of God. Whoever believes in the Son, verse 36, has eternal life. And whoever does not obey the Son by believing shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains upon him. The position of Jesus, above all, the perfect witness full of the Spirit, the eternal Son of God. And lastly, He is the way, the truth, and the life. And uh, no man goes to the Father except by Him. And so the supremacy of Jesus, He is worth our devotion. God bless you. And amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, 
or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.